we wanted to go A to B to C to D to E. You went from A and wound up at purple. And welcome back to another episode of Refactor, the show where we try and suck a little bit less every day as we walk that void between being a technology geek and being a technology leader. I am Frank Cole. And my name is Chris Tonkinson. And today is March 17th, 2021. And this is episode 014. Well, <laughs> so you and I were talking a couple weeks ago about uh <laughs> about drivers and about nvidia cards and we Bitcoin. made a very specific prediction on this show we made a very specific prediction that i think i'm going to insert right here no the incentive is the firmware is going to nerf mining performance on the regular cards. oh right yes right because so you and i whole, have right because those because those software-based lockouts, they they always firmware work really is, well. Firmware really is well. impenetrable. Right. <laughs> if there was not a flourishing, healthy, and robust underground for reversing the G the NVIDIA firmware, now there is. Yeah, exactly. Now there absolutely this is exactly is. my point. Like now you have two <laughs> problems. You know, yeah. like you, don't 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 do that, man. So. We made a very specific prediction about how the cards, uh, about uh, cryptocurrency and mining and video cards and all that stuff. And NVIDIA had released new cards and they had explicitly hobbled the video the video card drivers. It was one of the RTX 3000 line. I think it was a 3060. They released it and they said, well, we're going to put a limitation in place uh, so that you can't mine on it. Mm hmm. Exactly. And so I actually in to 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 actually your credit, Chris, you found the story. I didn't, but I totally made the prediction. And so that's why I opened with this. So we Ars Technica had an article on yesterday. This was yesterday. Headline NVIDIA accidentally releases driver to unnerf cryptocurrency so, mining. OK, so first of all. <laughs> You heard it here first, folks, but in my wildest, we knew, I mean, it wasn't a prediction so much as a fact foregone conclusion that this was going to get exploited. <laughs> they were, there, somebody was going to find a way. Never in my wildest dreams did I think, did I predict it would be NVIDIA providing the community with the workaround <laughs> because what actually happened is that they dropped a beta driver on their download site. And one of their developers inadvertently excluded the little snippet that nerfs the mining. And I think actually the way it works is that like if it detects that you're mining, it'll drop the hash rate after like 15 minutes, yeah. um, I think is is the technical implementation. But this was after this was after one of their spokes holes went out and, and said, oh, no, this is this. You can't you can't end around this because there's it's signed at the bios. Oh, so, so your your summary, yeah. See, your summary is great, uh, but it really like it doesn't do justice to what happened uh, here. So I got to read some of the lines from this article. It is just yeah, no, go, ahead, go ahead. It is just too good. So they talk about how the uh, the Ars Technica did testing. It would reduce the mining capacity by by half, which is pretty significant. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the article goes on. Uh, Unfortunately, the mining limitation 
is uh, the mining limitation appears to have been implemented in the software. So no, and Nvidia accidentally released a new driver that unlocked the mining capacity. A developer driver inadvertently included code used for internal development, which removes the hash rate limiter. Uh, let's see here. Last month, Nvidia spokesman spokeshole. I like that. Nvidia spokeshole Brian Del Rizzo tweeted that there was a quote secure handshake between the the bleh, between the driver, the RTX 3060 silicone, and the BIOS that prevents removal of the hash rate limiter. Now, <laughs> here is here is why these kinds of locks never work. Here's why the anti-copy piracy stuff never works. It's all the same problem. What is what do Pop quiz, Chris. What does the secure handshake between the driver, the RTX 3060 silicone, and the BIOS, what do all three of those things have in common? Exactly. They look exactly like the Solar Winds hack. This <laughs> they supply chain attacked themselves because the code change went in before all of that signing ever happened. That's a good uh, Let's you know assume what? that they did all of this correctly. Let's assume that they actually have some kind of and, and we have this right this is the uh the shift away from bios and into eufi uh that there we're talking about it's it's kind of the desktop equivalent of the secure enclave and stuff where uh we actually have cryptographic material in the hardware and then and then the the firmware is signed and then the software requires valid signatures from the firmware and that kind of gives you the uh the silicon up uh, validation verification of the secure platform right but if you but if you flip a bit in some configuration file before you hit the compile button right you you avoid all of that and that <laughs> appears to be what happened with this with this drug which by the way is now out in the wild so anybody that ever has a 3060 can just de disable automatic updates of firmware it's over and roll it and then they're good so and do their own thing that's actually you know i hadn't thought of it that way but you're absolutely right this is actually early enough in, in if you in the shift if left I'm, here, yeah, if, yeah, you may, that's a I'm, good point. If I'm reading between point. the lines correctly, yeah, right, there's a there's an if def or there's a there's a constant definition somewhere in the firmware. Developer said, no, we're gonna we're gonna turn off this limiter for whatever you know internal reason, and then that got published through and got out and signed and all of that kind of stuff. Right, that's my guess. That's okay, my guess. so what I actually but you were you were trying to make a different point. I was though. making a different point, but your yours is totally so, valid. The so point I the, was making: what the handshake, the silicon, and the BIOS all have in common. I don't know. So the driver, the silicon, the BIOS—they're all on the same local machine. They're all in the same place. Oh, oh. you don't so I put control the key them all. exactly. Yeah. You control all of them. It would be like. Let's say you have a house and let's say you have a door and this is a super secure door. This door has three locks on it. OK, and you have three separate keys for those locks. And so you lock those three doors and then you take those keys and you just put them on the porch in three different places. OK, they're not all right on top of one another. One's under the mat, one's under a potter, and then one is taped up under the eaves somewhere. Correct. They are all in the same place and they're all immediately accessible to whomever wants to get into your house if they're willing to take the time to look and locate, look for and locate them. So 
this is why these things you're absolutely <laughs> right this is drm and it failed this for is the DRM. Exact same. now it didn't in this case i i think it failed because you know nvidia just made a mistake that's well, i mean that's clearly uh, what happened happen yes yeah, yeah 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 i mean that's clear what but happened. but the fact as ours points out that the fact that he's out there it says it says previously boasted he was out there touting that now you can't end around this and I almost in my head, oh, you you know, you can't end around this, but we can right. <laughs> watch us do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the the, the boasting of the security, it's, it's just <laughs> it's just delightful. I mean, it that happened. guy has that guy has bloody feathers all over his office from the crow he's eating. This I week. wonder, do you think they fired the developer? That's what I that's no, what I was thinking about. I, I was like, do they fire the dev for making that kind of a mistake? I hope not. I think there's got to be an not. internal investigation as to whether or not it was intentional. But honestly, well, that's true. I, uh, uh, it's it's uh, Hanlon's razor, I believe, is the name of the fly. And I, I take this to heart. I use it every single day. Um, Hanlon's razor says uh, I'm I'll try to get the quote as, as close as I can, but it's not going to be exact. Never attribute, you know, when you're talking about somebody did something and what is their motive, you never attribute to malice what could be sufficiently explained via incompetence, which means if somebody does something and it impacts you and you think, why would they do that? A lot of people have the gut reaction that they did it to be mean. They did it to get one over on me. They did it because they're evil. And if there exists an explanation that involves just their stupidity or they made an accident, um, you should favor that interpretation of of the world as a as a as an assumption, um, and so Hanlon's razor here. I would I would proffer uh, applies, and so they just goofed. <laughs> they yeah. just goofed, and yeah. it is spectacular. It's to just witness. spectacular. It's it's you know it happened it, breaking breaking the uh, the the rate limiting happened faster than I thought it would. But I mean, it, thanks it is, to. <laughs> Thanks to the efforts of NVIDIA, no, thanks no, to their no hard work in, and dedication. But no less in line with what I expected, because the fact remains that the card is capable of doing those things. And so yeah. turning it off is an artificial limitation. And those kinds of things, simply by the nature of, you know, by design, they don't they don't work. They, they don't work. So yeah, there, it was there are alternative oh, ways. Man. I think they could have gone about locking this down. And I, I don't think it matters for, for that reason. I don't think it matters. Yeah, yeah, no matter how the only the only problem is the only problem is in this case, uh, in this case, I think people will get more mileage out of the official beta driver that dropped with the with the restrictions lifted because <clears throat> there's always going to be the part in the back of your brain that says, OK, great, I'm getting a hack driver so that I can mine cryptocurrency. There's an OPSEC question there that is in direct conflict. I'm taking unsigned third-party drivers from an unknown actor and putting them into a rig that theoretically should have really tight security if you know what you're doing, mm. um, there would always be a hesitation to use a driver like that unless there was some formal way to verify that it was clean. It did not contain anything other than just a, a lift on the, the hash restriction, right? Um, hash rate, the limiter. Um, so in this case, though, we got it straight from NVIDIA. So, you know, it's clean. There's no malware. There's no backdoors. It's, it's, everything's groovy, man. Just download it mm -hmm. and you're off to the races with your new 3060. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, yes, there's there's certainly the, the security concerns, but this is one of those situations where security is going to be counterbalanced by uh, capitalism, quite honestly. You know, any even any any security 
expert worth his salt, who also happens to be a a fervent miner who wants to go the route of grabbing these latest and greatest cards to do some some bigger, faster mining. You know, he's got to do a calculation in his or her head about whether or not the risk is worth it. But there's also things you can do to mitigate that, too. You could, for example, monitor the traffic going out from the system if you're really worried about them putting something especially nefarious in there. And so, you know, you can keep you you can you could do some things to 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 counterbalance that. And this just goes back. I mean, we've talked about this before where security is not a it's not a guarantee. It doesn't buy you a guarantee. It buys you time and it's always done in layers and there's always pros and cons to it. And every situation is different. So uh, I don't I would not expect absent the official driver being released by NVIDIA. <laughs> official, I would not. The, this is the official Bitcoin driver. <laughs> absent the official Bitcoin driver coming from <laughs> NVIDIA. I don't think that even hacked hacked drivers, quote unquote, would stop miners from using them. They may take extra precautions. There may be some additional no, that's, that's my point. I, I don't like mean that, to suggest that if if it if it hadn't come from NVIDIA that that people wouldn't be using a it would still that's happen. Not, that's not my point. Yeah. Um, I think people are going to be more comfortable deploying it at wider scale, oh, 100%. knowing that it came from NVIDIA. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. Oh, because I would take a second look. I would take. I would seriously have to think about this. If 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 it weren't from it, if it's from NVIDIA, like it is. Okay, if I had a thirty sixty, great. Throw it in a rig and off to the races. Mm-hmm. If if I had to wait for something from a third party to come out, that would cause me serious pause. I don't know any personally. I don't know anybody who actively mines that isn't very very security conscious oh sure um, yeah you you set up a clean system you harden it you make sure your access controls are in place you limit scopes of things you restrict network access you do, and you know and uh you download in many cases either a, either a signed binary with a, a previously known good key or you download do a verify a, um well not verifiable compile what do they call it repeatable um Oh, the term just popped out of my head. Uh, basically, there are settings where uh, within certain instances, you can compile something from the same source code. So if you and I, if you and I download the same source code mm-hmm. and compile it on our different machines, we're likely to get a different binary out of that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. uh, verified compilation, at the terms escaping me, um, there are ways where you can ensure if you and I, with our different stacks and our different computers, compile the same software um, the same way we will actually get binary compatible outputs of that, right? So the the, the digests would match. Um, it's not, you're sure it's not verified compilation? Is, is that, that, is that not is. the term? That might be what it is. You know, yeah. you were thinking about, <laughs> earlier you were thinking about, I can't remember what exactly the terminology is for Hanlon's razor. And I can't remember what this term is. You know, Chris, it's a shame that we don't have the world's knowledge the at our fingertips. <laughs> It's a shame we don't have the entire internet. Yeah, it's a shame that we don't have that right here. Um, Right here. Yeah, it might be verified compile. So that way, okay, here's the source. You use your compiler, and then this should be the digest of of this particular output. Mm. Um, uh, But yeah, you're you're kind of like it's incumbent upon you to either verify your compiles or validate the signature of binaries you're downloading for your, uh, your, your wallet software and your mining software and everything else. Um, so I right. don't know anybody that's that's actively mining that isn't that security conscious. Right. Um, it's fair to say paranoid, but I think I think rightfully so. Anyway, never mind all of that. This was doomed to fail. 
Never would I have guessed that <laughs> NVIDIA gave away the keys. <laughs> this is just fantastic. Just delicious. Oh, my gosh. It that is, is delicious. No, delicious. <laughs> mm. Oh, my gosh. Like a cr- I was uh, I was at a restaurant. It was just must be like 15 years ago. And I had an amaretto creme brulee. Um, oh, that sounds good. Best creme brulee. It was a nicer restaurant. Uh, never. I went there a couple of times after. They never had it again. Never found it anywhere else since. Best creme brulee of my life. It was at. Delicious. This is this is like that level of awesome. <laughs> that's that's quite the um, that's 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 quite the uh, uh, recommendation. And now and I'm, now well, wanna, I'm hungry. Well, now I got to do an amaretto creme brulee, and you know me, I I, I love amaretto. So uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I also um, other things on the uh, on the on the more um, geeky technical side. Um, uh, maybe perhaps some more forward thinking, maybe maybe some more prediction here. Uh, there is a newer stack of uh, a, a newer web application design stack from our friends over at Rails. Have you heard of Hotwire? No, Have you heard of this? No. What's, so this Hotwire. Is this is from Rails, like the core team. This is from or? this is from the core team. At at, okay. at at is this uh, an extension of their? I know they were um, Rails. Was it either one of the fives or six? Uh, specifically, was set up with uh, channels for WebSockets and stuff. Is this kind of an extension of that? Uh, kind of. It's what it is is really flipping cool. So um, in Rails, do you remember the? Uh, remember Turbo Links? Oh yeah. Okay, and everyone the thing, hates it's a thing that everybody turned off everything because it just caused problems. Right, because it caused problems. It was anybody. Right, right. It was a royal pain in the butt. Well, they doubled down on it to I think and hope everyone's benefit. So, and they have released it as a, a as a package called Hotwire. So, take the notion of the notion of Turbo Links was when you clicked a link, it would refresh a portion of the page like it, it, it instead of having to do a full page reload it would do you know just the thing that changed and it was really and I, I think it was an idea ahead of its time and it caused all kinds of problems with caching and sessions and cookies and stuff and it, it ended up being in a lot of cases more trouble than it was worth and so people would turn it off well they have taken that idea and they have applied it to the entire website and so now they have this thing called Hotwire, and it's mm. it is an alternative approach to building an app a, a modern single page application. So dynamic loading and all that kind of stuff. The way that it normally works is that you send you you basically build your application twice. You've got your back end logic that does all of your heavy business processing, and then you hand a compiled set of results, usually as a JSON object, to the front end. The front end then takes that JSON object and pulls it apart and displays it. You're talking on about the screen. A, you're talking about the architecture of a of a SPA. SPA is a single SPA, page single application. Page, yeah. So you have React, Angular, Vue yeah. fed by a JSON API. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I mean, it's pretty common. I have always, and I think most engineers would agree. It's annoying because you have to build your application twice. You have the back end stuff and then you got the front end stuff and you're kind of doing double duty in a, in a certain sense. You know, you've got the application living in two places. That's part of the reason why things like Node.js have become really popular because you can use JavaScript on the back end, JavaScript on the front end. You eliminate some of the duplication. I think Meteor.js Meteor. is another Meteor one. Meteor was yep. a big, yeah, they were one of the early, early entrants to that. That was, that was early. This, I think, actually has legs. So I, I am I am predicting that 
three years from now, most apps are built like this because what they do, what they're doing is they're they're not messing with the formula of building on the back end and then handing stuff to the front end. What they're changing is what is handed from the back end to the front end and what that front end looks like. So, so is this a, this is an iteration on the approach and and TurboLinks was supposed to do this. You kind of identify I'm going to make this request and here's the say the ID of the element that's going to change as a result. When the result comes back, I'm only going to rewrite that section of the DOM. Correct. And this seems like an iteration on that. Yes, it is. And okay. instead of just being one piece of the DOM, it's the whole DOM. And so what it's handing back is instead of handing it JSON, it hands HTML. And so you're actually handing back the the actual page components. And then the front end JavaScript piece is largely a small repeated set of just receive request, spit request onto, onto page. And so you don't actually do any front end rewriting. You're handing there's a there's a unique expected consistent handshake between the front the the back end and the front end about what to expect in terms of its uh, in terms of its structure and content but it then when you just, say when you say it's the whole dom what you mean is like initial page load is the whole dom as a normal like traditional server side rendered application would be but then from then on I'm not transmitting json to the front end converting that to html manipulating the page from then on I'm doing that what TurboLinks was trying to do poorly, which is sending rendered fragments or every response. Well, that's just it. No, they don't. That's just it. They don't render. They don't. Even the first load is just the the lightweight bit of JavaScript and then the the received message from the back end, which is in which is set up as HTML instead of as JSON. And it just spits that onto the page. There are tags you can you break it into sections logically, but you're still just handing it HTML and it is still just spitting that HTML onto the page. And then what you do with the logical breakups, the front end knows where the breakups are. The back end is the one that's actually handing it the HTML with the breakups. And so you can individually refresh sections without having to explicitly define them on the front end. The front end doesn't have to look, you yeah. don't have to tell the front end, here's a unique section. It's a, the, the here's a unique section is already coded in what gets handed back. And so what this ultimately means is all of your logic, okay, no, 90% of your logic now lives on the back end. So instead of it being, say, a 50-50 split where you where you hand you, you could do business processes on the back end and then you hand the display results to the front end and the front end does all of the display and the layout and, and all that stuff. All of the work has been shifted. Most of the work has been shifted to the back end. There's a there's a video on the website. Hotwire.dev is the is the URL. There's a video right there on the homepage that they actually walk through building the application. It does a way better job of explaining it than I ever could on, you know, over over voice. This is one of those things that you, it, when you see it in action, it makes a lot of sense. And for anyone who has built a modern web application before, or who, you know, who has lamented the, uh, the slow nature of request response pages, but then also lamented how much work it is to build and maintain single page apps, you're going to look at this and go, holy crap, because now you're, you're, we're sort of, we're sort of coming full circle. We're back to almost traditional request response 
in structure because all the the heavy lifting all lives on the back end, but the user experience is a dynamic front end, and you're able to do individual uh you're you're able to um reload individual elements you're able to do the uh make you're able to have the config page and change a single element without having to hit the save button at the bottom you know so you still get all those dynamic niceties those dynamic magic components but you don't have to build a heavy single page app front end all you have to build is your back end and you can build it in whatever language you're you're most comfortable with and so now app designers don't have to be um front end experts as well which was you know there was so always a common this get, is, a common divide this is not specific to the rails ecosystem they i mean it's initially released inside of rails and it's i mean it's it's made by the rails team so it obviously works out of the box with rails but it's handing it's it's handing HTML. It's just it's just handing an HTML response. There is no reason that you couldn't hook this up to a C sharp app. Or does it does it change the way? Uh, I'm thinking like a traditional enterprise CRUD with MVC. Mm-hmm. Does it change the architecture there at all? Change the the architecture of like the data on the back end, the database, that sort of thing. Is that what you mean? No. Does it does it? So if I if I have like an MVC app. Okay. Let's say let's say I have an MVC app. Okay. Um, how do I how do I approach this? Yeah, I have a traditional MVC app and with a single page app front end. With, or well, with or without. I almost don't without. care about okay. the front end. All right. All right. Um, because either there isn't much there or there won't be. Mm-hmm. But if mm-hmm. if I have MVC on the back end for the API or or including the views in, and it, because in this case you would have to include the views in the back end now. Yeah, the views. If right. they weren't on the back end, they're there, they're now there. Mm-hmm. Um, does it change the 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 basic essential structure of an MVC nope. application or no. how does it No, okay. I mean your back end is still your back end. Mm. You're handing I mean you're you're still bridging that divide between the server handing data to the front end which lives in JavaScript on the on the end user's machine in their in their browser. So you're thinking so, that the you're thinking that the front end component to this is likely super portable to any other system. Correct. As long as it you know, it basically adheres to the contract. It's super portable and it's super lightweight too for what needs to be loaded on on initial loads. So a lot of single page apps, you and I dealt with this. It's not as much of a problem these days, but you go back 10 years, single page apps had this major problem where loading up was a long process in some cases because it, so much of it lived in JavaScript. And so you had this big payload that the browser had to load initially before the application came on. And so caching became really important and you, you know, you needed to, it to be as small as possible. Those problems are, they're less of an issue today because we've gotten better at building them because browsers have gotten smarter because caching has gotten better and things like that. But it's still something that you need to, to think about with, this structure, the front end is already super duper lightweight. You know, it is, it is just, yeah, I'm not, it's you, just you blue keep, pieces. No, I, I get, I get that the, I get that the JavaScript shim on the front end is really light. I almost don't care about that because I get the idea. I'm, I'm okay. more curious about how this impacts the back end. Right. Okay. So the, right. the so, way because we, we've been through this, it seems like just another refinement on the trend that's been continuing because we had, yeah. 
server side and then jQuery blew up and then we started <laughs> to see uh, like the backbones and, and the precursors to that. There was a dojo. There were some other things, I think, there. Scriptaculous. Um, Remember Scriptaculous? That had, was the first one. Uh, I, I never Scripta- used Scriptaculous. No. Scriptaculous was pre-jQuery. Um, I love that one. That was great. Uh, then you had then you had the rise of the actual uh, uh, frameworks. Uh, mm-hmm. Ember was one Ember. that came out of kind of the Rails community. That was a that was a dumpster fire. But it um, was I mean it was a first but, it was an initial attempt. You know, like we've yeah, we've learned, yeah. and each one builds yeah. on Ember, um, and then you had Angular. So then, yeah, uh, React, Angular, and React and Vue, and all these kind of come along. It, but so the there was a lot of work spent in it, it at at one particular season on that problem, right? How do we get the initial page load down? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so then we started playing with this idea that no, if we if we tie things together the right way, um, we can have a server rendered initial page load. Mm-hmm. And then have the SPA take over from there right. so that you don't have the flash of unstyle content. You don't have the time to first render. You don't have all those. Right. Things, right? That's really nice and quick and smooth. And then it gives you just enough time to load the SPA so it can take over and be all nice and dynamic and hipstery. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then that started to creep. We're like, well, but if we server rendering the homepage is faster then maybe we should server render some other right it started to creep in right this is like okay if that's the direction we're going how do we server render everything but still get the dynamicism on the front end without a lot of effort i'd be curious if they have if they're having any issues or if there are bugs not not having looked at it yet if they're having any issues um being reported around you know state management and caching and because you still do you still do need state on the front end. And this is actually the, the was the big problem with React at first. Um, everybody said, oh yeah, React is great. Nobody's using React without Redux because state it doesn't it doesn't address state management at all. So mm-hmm. you, like React by itself is kind of useful. Right. Okay. Um, so but you have to have this other component to manage an otherwise a big piece of what your application has to do. So I'd be curious how they how they approach. I'm sure they've answered it. I just I'm curious. Yeah. So so I'm gonna answer both. I heard two questions in there and I deliberately did not talk to you in advance about this because I wanted to have this conversation on, on the show and, you know, hit you cold with it and make you ask these, ask me these questions and actually have this dialogue. So that, that was the point. Um, so you ask about how does this change MVC? Well, it, it doesn't in the same way that going to a single page app really didn't change MVC either. Views sort of got adopted. So a view in a single page app world, instead of handing, instead of you actually compiling an HTML page and then, you know, here you go, handing that to the front end, it, it got broken into, into JSON. And so the view became right, it's, just well, it's, it's just JSON. a question of rendering, right? Yeah. So even even back uh, even back in the Rails Rails three days, mm-hmm. we had different renderers. Whether you wanted to send markup to the front end or JSON to the front end or XML to the front end, you could right. simply say dot HTML dot JSON dot dot you know markdown whatever you wanted. You could define arbitrary renderers, mm-hmm. um, and then depending on the 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 request, depending on the accept header of the request, uh, Rails would automatically give you the view that you wanted right. so you'd feed common data into a view i'm going to say view component that's misleading but you you know your your controller would prepare uh a data structured in an assumed uh contract mm-hmm. to the view system and then based on the header requested we'd say okay we're going to feed this data into a json render an xml renderer an html renderer um and it seems like kind of the same thing, except we're always using HTML. 
which, yeah, which would make sense. I mean, yes, but I mean, I know from experience that when I built, I, I guess I don't see the difference between, um, from the back end perspective, I'm trying to figure out maybe there's not as much of a difference here as I'm thinking working. Well, that's, I mean, that's thing. the point there. There isn't you you continue to build back end apps the way you always have been. What you worry less about is, um, translating what you translating from the back end to the front end. So let's go with the, so the first page, let's go with the, the, the first page load speed thing. When, if, if I'm, if I'm understanding it correctly, cause I've only, I've only dabbled with it a little bit, but no, no, you discovered this within the last, you, we didn't talk about this last week, which means you've known about this for less than six days. I expect you to be an expert. Damn it. Actually, one of my, one of my friends, Don't uh, cop out on me, one of, one of the engineers on my team, uh, had, had shown this to me, uh, several weeks ago. I just, um, it was backburnered on with other things. Oh, so um, now you're lazy and incompetent. Now- <laughs> I, I don't know why I put up with this. It's ridiculous. So uh, <laughs> the, so you go with that, that first page load thing where they, they, they queue up all the, all the, you know, they get the first page load. Everything's gets, gets cached. You get the CSS and all, and all of that. This doesn't have that first page load limitation because from the get-go the back end is handing the front end the html in these chunks in the rendered markup and so the first page to the last page they're all built and managed and handled the same way and so you don't have any of that discrepancy you you don't have to change how how the code works. You're you are handing it you're handing it HTML, uh, and with with some additional you know blocky logical markup so that it you know so that the front end can recognize okay this is a chunk and this is a chunk and when I do this then I'm going to call that that controller. But it's built that knowledge. The things that you would have to normally tell a React controller tell a view controller okay when this happens then you're going to go to this url with this information and then you're going to get this response you don't need to define any of that it's inherent in the structure of the html and then the back and the back end is co- is <clears throat> commensurately also looking for specific responses or specific requests so this so and this then routing them appropriately so so each of these independently rendered uh, views mm-hmm. each of these independently rendered view components uh, is basically uh, uh, it 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 abstracts up its own form. Pretty so much. whenever you interact with it, it the framework is handling. Hey, I have a state change to this thing. I'm mm-hmm. going to call it a form because I'm old and cranky. Um, I have a state change to this is. component. It knows how to serialize. Send that to the back end as requesting get back updated markup for what that component should now look like. And the back end and the back end in turn knows uh, when it receives one of these things. So there is there is some it's very railsy in the sense that it's highly opinionated. It's it's setting Mm -hmm. some expectation about what it's going to send and what is and what is going to be received on both sides of the equation. But by setting those standards, you, you, you have now eliminated a whole crap ton of legwork. And so think of it another way to think about it. Imagine. Imagine having the logic necessary to have these these dynamic JSON-based JavaScript-driven request responses. Imagine having, instead of building that logic in a JavaScript file in React or something, or Vue or something like that, imagine it's actually just kind of 
baked into the HTML. Like the tag actually, just by the nature and the name of the tag, it will know what to do. The yeah. back end will know what to do. So you're, it changes a little bit about what you do on the front end. It changes a little bit of your routing on the back end. But you are, in turn, just washing your hands of the the constant feedback loop that you do to build these, these single-page applications. It's really cool. I think it's really, really cool. And I will be surprised if everyone's not building applications this way in inside of three years, just because it's when I watch well, the been video, far too the long. demo is just mind We just, we just figured out, we just figured out how to get microservices wrong at scale. And so the industry <laughs> is ready to rebuild everything in the newest technology. So this comes at a great time. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I place a lot of faith. I place a lot of faith in the, in the rails Team, I always thought that DHH David Heinemer Hansen had the the right mindset when it came to to building web applications. Um, he was never beholden to doctrine. Uh, you know, he always he always pissed off neckbeards, which I think is always a good thing <laughs> generally. Um, and this is not. This is not yet another JavaScript framework. No, he was he was always opinion, and he used he used hyperbole to illustrate his point. And I don't yeah. think he was wrong in a lot of cases. His point was, out of the umpteen million microservices being written, ninety percent of them really could be monoliths. And if you built them that way, you'd have an easier time and you'd make more money. And he's right. Yeah, he's a right. A lot of things that were microservice didn't need to be now. Well, it goes deeper what than that. that. And we're getting is, tangential. We're getting tangential here. I mean, I'm happy to have this conversation. But the point I was trying to make was simply that because it was coming from the Rails team and they, when Rails came about, I think it fundamentally solved web apps. You know, it was a, it was another, it was another major milestone in the, in the development of web apps evolution, you know, and uh, because they, and, and it was so because they broke a lot of paradigms that, you know, didn't exist before. And we've had a lot of copycats since, and, um, you know, that it's just, it's just how they, the, how they operate. And so this is not just another JavaScript framework, the way that, you know, like you said, JavaScript frameworks turn over every 12 months. It's ridiculous how fast that, that space can go. Um, you know, this is, this is something altogether different. This is actually moving away from JavaScript. It's actually the, the one of the goals is to write less JavaScript. And so I see it as like Rails before it. I see this as another major step forward in in how we're we're building and managing applications. So it's, that being it's, said, it's an, it's an opinion, opinionated iteration <clears throat> yeah. on, on what that team has been doing for now two decades. Yeah, forever. You know, it's, it's uh, crazy 15 years about. at least. Um, crazy, I, you know. About. I think the I think the initial port into Git of of Rails was circa two thousand eight or nine. It's or crazy something. to think um, about, man. I'm getting old. So it's been it's been a while. I I don't agree. I don't I don't necessarily agree with mainstream opinions on why Rails was important and why it changed things. It's nothing about the tech. It's nothing about the features. It's nothing about the opinion. Because anything, anything DHH does is he is unapologetically opinionated, and that's yeah. cool. Um, <clears throat> what was what was fundamentally n- not even novel, um, 
But what was interesting, and I think what really did change things in a, in a meaningful way conceptually was the thing that probably gets the least attention, which is conf- uh, 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 config, um, convention over configuration. Yep. Right. So if you put a thing yes. here and you name it this way, all of this stuff automatically happens. And then you can go override that if you want to. Right. Until this point, and there are exceptions, I'm, I'm generalizing, but until that point, the majority of work was being done. Okay. I need to explicitly declare this. And then I need to explicitly declare that. And then if I forget to do this, it's not going to do the thing. And then I'm going to have a, pr- and then the idea that, okay, no, the framework should handle all of those same defaults. And here's how you invoke it. It can, it can and should be easy to invoke the framework defaults for all the stuff that we're all doing every, every day anyway. And then we give you the latitude to go and uh, color outside the lines when you need to. That is the thing that I have seen adopted. I mean, uh, in, in, I mean, every other, every other major framework, language, community, the newer stuff that's coming out, that's the thing that I saw really blossom out of Rails. Okay, they have opinions on monoliths and JavaScript and all that kind of stuff. That's great, but you know that's kind of specific. Nobody outside of Ruby knows or cares about that. Um, I think the convention over configuration—that was the thing mm-hmm. that I really think stuck and changed. That was the evolutionary bit of that. The rest is in normal iteration of tech. Yeah, the high, the highly opinionated nature of it. But it w- the other the other piece that I think you're not giving enough enough credence to was their their willingness to look convention and and generally accepted best practices in the face and go, Mm-mm, nope, not going to do it. A lot of times we, because best practices exist for a reason, and there is usually very well-founded reason and pressure to stay inside of those spaces so that you avoid certain problems. I mean, these things don't come out of nowhere. They come from war-torn, hard-won experience. And they were always willing to look at that stuff and go, yeah, but no. And they were willing to do the, the, the trade-off, you know, if I don't do this and they were really one, they, they had the discussion. Yeah. I I mean, you you paint them as you paint them as more kind of intentionally countercultural. And I think they were just a little more thoughtful in their approach. Hey, we have a specific use case. The industry seems to be liking this thing. Uh, They said, well, well, why is that? And does it apply to us now? Because they had, they were, I'm not going to say the first, but they were a major, uh, um, a majorly influential open source framework on which a bunch of other open high profile stuff got built. What they were doing did have a change. And I think a lot of that was good. Yeah, but I don't. I, I don't see them as as you know. Oh, we're rebellious. We're oh, not, I'm not. I'm not sitting here. Right. No, no. They just they sat back and they said, "Hey, you know what? That actually doesn't work for us." But I see your point. There's a way we can address that as an iterative approach to what we're already doing, rather than nuking and paving and drinking the Kool Aid writ, writ large. Right. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not sitting here trying to not trying to write their. Um, dramatically based documentary here, you know, insert dramatic music. That's, that's not my, my point. Maybe I'm using a little, a little bit of hyperbole, you know, just to illustrate the fact that a lot of times, and I mean, this happens, I I think it strikes a chord with me because I see it beyond rails. Now I see it inside of just, you know, tech organizations and, and even in my, in my role today, just the willingness to step back and question the, the norms 
And why are we doing it this way? And is that the best way? And what are our alternatives? And what are the pros and cons? A lot engineers get get very religious about things very quickly. I mean, you and I could probably start a conversation about tabs versus spaces here and it would go, we could carry that for weeks. We could probably carry that for weeks. So we, we, we have, we have strong opinions and I don't think that we always have them loosely held the way that we should. And this approach is exactly that. It was strong opinions, loosely held. A lot of the conversation that I have seen him do in presentations is actually him fighting those conventions, fighting the best practices that he has, you know, that that others have have pushed. Well, why did you do it this way? You know, and and, and things like that. And uh, it's it's important that we keep all of that properly framed because a lot of times there are opportunities outside of those norms that if you're not willing to look at and consider you're never even you're never even going to to see, and that's something that goes I mean, way beyond programming. This is you know you know now we're into that now we're into our void walker territory. You know this is one of the things that you know in in that in that gap space becomes becomes very important. You've got to be able to um to borrow a term, think outside the box. And for us, a lot of times the box is the generally accepted best practices. No, you must do it this way. Well, hold on a second. Why? And and thinking about that and and breaking those down and actually doing a pro con assessment is is important. And we need well, to that's, do that. That's more. what makes sometimes uh leading engineering teams difficult is because we there's sort of this with multiple personality disorder as developers largely where you're right we get stuck in we get stuck in our ways right this is the right way to do it and so this is the way it shall be done and if somebody mm-hmm. deviates from the path then uh we will burn them because they are a witch <laughs> get out the uh, pitchforks yet yet at every decision point we are paralyzed by analysis Right, and there's this weird dichotomy that happens mm. in discussions, and you've seen yeah, this. And I I've have, seen yes, it. I have, yes, I have. Where I'm thinking uh, of one in particular where I, I actually had to get up and leave a room. But go ahead. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's it's a, it's a challenge to manage teams in this space because you have somebody in the room who has done it different ways, and it's blown up in their face, and. Because of all of those classes of problems, we do it this way because it solves for all of those. Mm-hmm. Somebody else comes along maybe with a little less experience and sees, hey, there's opportunity, uh, doesn't know about the legacy, doesn't understand all of the stuff that happened before, says, oh, there's this new thing came out and it makes sense. Like, why wouldn't you do it this way? And they're both right. So it would be fine to go with, because the thing that just came out is built by guys that have all of the baggage from all of the past experiences and are trying to solve for all of those things. But the way that's established is also a right way to proceed. And so now you have this question, do we, do we keep doing something? You know, it's the devil, you know, do we keep doing something and we just get better at failing in the ways that we know this method is subject to? Or do we try to change the paradigm and potentially get bloody? 
and that's a that's a tough that can be a tough one to manage. I think it's I think it's uh, handling that is actually a little bit simpler than you're than you're probably thinking. If you go into every situation with a with a good faith effort of asking questions, even asking or especially asking the the same questions that you have that you have asked in the past. So taking your hypothetical no, no, I'm of, not I'm not talking about me struggling to make those decisions. I'm talking about managing a team who's trying to navigate those decisions where you don't necessarily you're not necessarily party to every conversation. You have more people than you can keep a close eye on trying to navigate those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, do- it doesn't matter. Your team is big enough. Eventually, you've got a dud and they gum up the works. And sometimes it takes time to tease that apart. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, the, the historical example, the BO, BOFH, the, the bastard operator from hell, right? The canonical neckbeard grumpus on the team that mm-hmm. just this is the way I'm doing it, you know, because I'm right, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that that's a, that's a person issue. You're not going to solve a people issue with technology. Um, but yeah, my actually, point is, I would argue that person should be fired, but you know, I don't think oh, that's yeah. the point. I don't think that's the yeah, point. They don't, they don't need to, they don't need to be here anymore. They don't need to be um, there. But it's, it's, it's difficult sometimes to have these discussions and, and figure out, okay, well, we know we're getting bit by the way things are. We don't know how we're going to get bit if we change them. You know, what's the value judgment there? What's the risk calculation? It gets, it, it gets murky. And I mean, as long as you're open and you say, look, best tool for the job, what are the parameters for success? Is it, is it time? Is it money? Or is it efficacy? You know, the iron triangle. Quality, as long quality. as you're clear about setting the conversation up and this is what we need out of it, then it becomes, it becomes a lot clearer. And, and like anything else, it's just managing expectations. Yeah, I'm going to double down on what I said, though, because I, I think that what you what you're describing doesn't doesn't actually conflict with what I'm suggesting, you know, going in and asking questions. If you set if you level set with your team, you know, if, 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 if you're the if you're in charge and you you're you know setting you know the, the tone and tenor and cadence for how the team works, if you set the expectation of, OK, new problem, ask questions, ask lots of questions. And, you know, understand the lay of the land before you act. That sometimes involves, actually, I will say often involves asking some of the same questions that you have asked before. If only to say, is this the same situation as the one we dealt with before? If yes, then everything we learned before applies. If no, what's different? And then you go explore that. And so it's, I still think that there is, well, the question isn't what's different. The question is what's meaningfully different, again, according to the success criteria. Well, right. Right. So, because every splitting hairs, but yes, I, yes. No, no, I don't think I am because oh, it no, I think you are. No, no, I 100% think you are. <laughs> it requires understanding what problem we're trying to solve. That's all. If, if, if I, if I don't say that once a week, I'm a liar, right? Like, what right. problem are we actually trying to solve? Which is one of the questions. What are the success criteria? Because every situation is different. Right. So, okay, are the differences meaningful? Well, right. how do you know that unless you know what problem you're trying to solve? Right? So you have to orient. It's that upfront setting the expectations, being clear about what we want out of the exercise, and then things normally work themselves. Right. And out. how do you figure that stuff out? You you figure it out by asking questions. And yeah, yeah part of one to. of the and, and what you're doing is in in asking the questions, you you then you gain knowledge, which you then what? Apply to your past historical knowledge and experience that you have gained from previous 
you know, iterations in and around the same kinds of problems. Yeah. It's, it's how we, it's how we grow and, and learn. And so what we, but what happens, like you were saying with your, with your neck beard, your, your um, bastard operator from hell is that we can get stuck in our ways and say, nope, this is it. This is how I'm doing it. This is how I've always done it. I see no reason to switch. And sometimes it's not as overt as the, as the BOFH. And we, I think, I think we all have a a tendency to, to play in that, in that space. If we're not, if we're not careful and you break out of that by just simply, okay, is this different? You know, just, just being open, open and willing to, to ask the question. Now, then there's the flip side of this, which is the decision paralysis, which I, I mean, we have, we've both seen this firsthand and you, you got to make a call and you got to go. And I, that one, that one's, that one's stickier. I don't know if there is a, if there's anything beyond just recognizing it when it happens and somebody putting their foot down on nope we gotta well, make again, a call we gotta go well again it's back to back to culture it's disagree and commit yeah yeah so at some point we say look we're having this discussion what are the options get all the options out on the table let's evaluate them on their merit let's discuss pros and cons let's figure uh, you know and then putting that up against the success criteria what problem are we trying to solve mm-hmm. and all right and you know, you you know as 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 the as the as the leader, you you can see when the team is spinning in circles. And oh yeah, yeah, the, the conversation, yeah, the conversation. And as soon as I identify yeah. that that's the case, okay, final arguments, and then we're going to make the decision, and then we're going to move on. And it's disagree and commit, mm-hmm. um, because once you start, once the team starts cycling, it means that somebody, at least somebody, if not some bodies, are dug in, yeah, and. It's yep. time to move on. Like you've not, you're not going to cover new ground, or or if you think there is still ground uncovered, that's your opportunity to reorient. Say, okay, how about we move on to this thing? Um, right. Disagree and commit is the only way out of that. You know, yeah. and, and just being an honest broker that that's how you operate, that's what you expect of the team. I think that'll get you out a lot of the uh, out of a lot of the butt hurt. Well, that and you you are, you have to put somebody in charge too. That's that's yeah. the other thing that I that, <laughs> I, I'm in charge, right? <laughs> I am. <laughs> in situation i mean for for um for situations that are beyond chris's ego let's let's hypothetically this say is, that there's all right, a, you're you're in pretty rarefied say that there's, there's very a con- little that i cannot accomplish. let's just yeah let's just theoretically say there's a conversation happening or a technical this technical decision that chris is not in the room for <laughs> in order to make sure that those conversations happen as quickly and efficiently as possible i do two things uh, one, if you're stuck, come get me. It's, you, know, you, you always give them that out that mm-hmm. the 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 break to uh, you know to to pull out and and get some get some assistance. Two, somebody in that room has to be in charge. One person has to be in charge, and so there's a there's a I agree completely. There's a third thing. So okay, I think the, the out if 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 something gets stuck, come get me. Mm-hmm. Uh, identify somebody who's on point. And then a date, right? And you don't a have deadline. to go yeah. like all, yeah, you know, project management institute on it. But <laughs> no. hey, guys, um, 
either I don't have time or, you know, we talked a few weeks ago about how as you as you grow in your influence, your your perspective broadens, but your resolution on the details diminishes. Right. I don't have all of the details or I don't have the time in the day. This is something that I need to delegate to you, you three or you five. You guys got to go figure this out for me. Unpack it. I trust you. Go get it done. Mm hmm. Even if each five of those is a rock star, and even if each five of those is wholly competent and has a great attitude to everything else, if you don't put a name and a date on it, it's not going to get done. Right. <laughs> it's so, uh, so hey, uh, you know, you got Tom, Dick, and Harry. Uh, we got this problem. I need you guys to come up with a solution. Tom, if you can uh, run point on this and just, you know, give me whatever you have by Friday, let me know if you get stuck. Boom, mm -hmm. done. You got, a, you got a person and a date. You give them an out. And now they, everybody knows who's driving and it just, it, it streamlines that whole thing. Yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And so once you've got, once you've got that, then I, and you have going back to what I said before about, you know, setting the, um, level setting expectation about, you know, how to handle problems and, you know, how to make this, it's not how to handle problems, how to make decisions. You know how to make yeah. the decisions, and they and and your team will mimic you, and so it's important that they see the same decision making process. So you got to practice what you preach. You can't. This is this is something that is that is imitated. It's not something that you can dictate. More and, is more is caught than taught. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And I like I, I uh, one thing I like to do, um, not so much in a group setting, but maybe in a one on one setting. I will I will call back, you know. You know, this thing that we're talking about, right? This is like the situation I was in the other day with you and this other group and remember this and happened and such and such. And I especially like using mistakes when when I screw up. I like calling those out. Um, I, I mean, mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. It's it's I, I'm not talking about, you know, catastrophic type of things here. I'm just talking about, you know. Your your average day to day, ah, I should have gone left and I went right, and you know it's you know minor stuff. But mistakes are great because uh, you know what you did wrong, you know what you should have done, and it's easy to communicate that information. And hopefully, you're helping the uh, the other person avoid those mistakes themselves in the future too. So mistakes, you know, and mistakes are actually a good, uh, I think, a good metric. One good metric for validating your hiring strategy. So if you have if you have good people on your team versus not great people on your team, hmm. that'll show in the way that you respond to mistakes. So if somebody if somebody's clearly a dud and they're making and they make some mistake, and I've had people make pretty big mistakes, and the conversation has either been, yeah, I expected that, and you kind of feel like, why didn't you get this right? If you have good people on your team, and I've had people make big mistakes that were good on the team, uh, my attitude is it happens, right? And it's just a gut. It's just a gut thing uh, that can help validate whether or not you're doing a good job, growing and setting the expectation and the, the tenor of your team correctly. Because um, in my mind, if I have a good employee, and I've had some people that were great, made big mistakes, and it was clear that they were like, "Oh man, it's like, is this is this the is this curtains?" Right? Like it was a you know, a high enough visibility where I know that thought had to be going through their mm -hmm. head. Sure. Um, and I'm so sorry. I don't know how this happened. Like, I've, you know, and my response is almost, if it's a good employee, my response is almost universally the same. Look, I know you, I know you didn't mean it. And I know, and I asked them, is this ever going to happen again? No, absolutely not. No, I, I can't because this, 
right? Mm-hmm. Somebody, I know you're not going to make that mistake. Why would I fire you over this? Like, why would you? Right. I, that's one less thing I have to worry about now. And now let's socialize with the, this with the team. Let's share the experience. Let's put some, you know, if we need to put a process in place or something like that. Um, but that's always a gut check to me. I, that's one of the ways that I identify I've got a bad egg if I don't approach their mistakes that way. And it's it's a squishy thing. It's not something I can put in a spreadsheet or, you know, um, it's it's one of those gut feels. Um, well, I think but that it's kind it, of an indicator. Yeah, it's it, uh, there. I think there's less squish around that than than you might think. Uh, in the case of mistakes between good employees and bad employees, I can usually look at the sequence of events that led to the mistake for the for the good employee and go, oh, I see how you ended up there. There's usually like, yes, they made the mistake, yeah. but there's there's sort of. The fork in the road is not so obvious of right, yep. you know, giant sign that says right and giant sign that says wrong. It's right. more gray. And you can see what, you know, how it happened. And typically the- it's it's a it's several minor things chained together in a certain way. That exactly. Like the, it's like the a- holes in the Swiss cheese lined up. Exactly. Exactly. Whereas with a poor employee, the mistake happens and you think. How in the world did you even get here? You came so far down this road and I saw you going off the rails six miles ago. So we wanted to go A to B to C to D to E. You went from A and wound up at purple. Where did this (laughs) purple? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's. It's that kind of stuff. So so, yeah, there's there's definitely squish involved, but I mean, you can. You can usually look at things in a in a in a um, academic formulaic way and 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 draw some some hard conclusions beyond the beyond the beyond the squish. I gotta check out this hot wire thing though. Oh, it's awesome! Yeah. It's it's so cool. The the like I the video actually he he constructs a he constructs a whole application right there and it, it's it's. It's ugly because, you know, these demo apps always are, but the functionality is there and it's dynamic and you watch it and you go. <laughs> yeah, we don't we we're we, we already rolling the outro. We're not going to do the, the whole pick thing, but we'll put this in as our as our pick for research pick of the week. Yeah. Oh, well, here's the thing, man, with the, this is a professional. This is a professional setup. Professional so I can operation. so I can play this loop and I can play our, our outro and I can do super augmented silent and deadly. There you go. I just might end up enjoying. I mean, look this. at this. This is this is pro level. Why stuff don't we right get here. paid more for this? <laughs> this is, I want to know high quality stuff right here. This is a professional operation. We're not we're no, no ain't no scrubs. <laughs> Oh, gosh. All right, everybody. Well, this has been another episode of the Refactored Podcast. You can find us and uh, show notes and archives at refactored.work. Hit us up, feedback at refactored.work. Um, my, uh, my personal site, if you care about that sort of thing, is at chris.tonkinson.com. My partner in crime, the lemon to my lime over here, Frank Cole, he can be found at www.hotcoals.com. And uh, I think that about plays us out, Frank. I, I like I like partnering crime lemon to lime. I, I see what you did there. You 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 like that? You yeah, like that was little, that was I'm pretty a little good. Bit of a linguist. Yeah, you're. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs>